It's July in San Antonio. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Karashi. Today we're listening in on a discussion with Bill Armstrong, who is a professor at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine. He's also the director of the Neurosciences Institute there. Bill's research is focused on morphology and physiology of oxytocin and vasopressin releasing cells of the superoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus. Fidel Santa Maria, Todd Troyer, and Carlos Palladini joined in a discussion with Bill led by Charlie Wilson. Thanks for listening. Here's Charlie. Oxytocin and vasopressin seem totally different from each other. Why in the world would oxytocin and vasopressin be in the same nuclei in cells that look almost exactly the same and be functionally so completely different from each other? So it's a good question. The two hormones are similar. They only differ by amino acid. If you look ancestrally, if you will, evolutionarily, the, they are single nucleus invertebrates, lower vertebrates. So frog, lizard, there's no supraoptic and paraventricular. There's this, just a single nucleus called the magnocellular preoptic nucleus. Um, the hormones that they make are a little bit different uh, depending on what species, but some of those that you find, for example, in fish, for example, in mesotocin and isotocin, these are all, these are all peptides, 10 amino acid peptides like vasopressin and oxytocin. And they all, most of them for the most part, have either an action on smooth muscle in these species in some way or another, or they, they act on some kind of a collecting duct like in the kidney or so. The, the, your question is kind of twofold. One is that they're not as hard to tell apart in, in vivo as they are in vitro. So in, in vivo, if you stimulate them the right way, you can easily tell them apart, okay? If you have a lactating female rat, for example, uh, vasopressin cells will not fire during milk ejection bursts, uh, whereas oxytocin cells will, even though they're right next to each other. Um, so they 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 are they are different in that regard. the The function of these two uh, is not uh, is somewhat related in the sense that if you take an animal like a, a male rat and dehydrate it, you'll get the release of both hormones. That's not a specific stimulus, unlike lactation. That's not a specific stimulus. Why, you might ask? Why, was, why, why should oxytocin be released? Well, it's what we know now, which we didn't know 20 years ago, is that oxytocin is a potent naturetic. So anytime you raise uh, osmolality, for example, the biggest osmotic principle is sodium. You want to dump sodium and retain water. That's the quickest way to come back to equilibrium. So oxytocin will give you naturesis will dump some sodium and, and vasopressin will collect water from the kidney. So we now know that oxytocin in males acts as a naturetic factor. Uh, in addition, something that's very surprising, uh, I, I was surprised by it, um, and that is that oxytocin is also released in males uh, during ejaculation, very potently. It might even be one of the more potent stimulus for oxytocin release. What it does after that, no one knows. They don't know what this huge bolus well, of oxytocin. So it isn't the cause. It is it's not the, the cause. It result. comes with. Yeah. In fact, you can block it in humans. They've done this. You can imagine this kind of study I where, this kind of study. <laughs> where uh, subjects are put in an isolated room with some interesting material and and asked to come out. After being later. given some drug, there's actually a, uh, a recent paper, J Neuroscience, so. almost exactly was like that. Yeah, yeah. what they were doing. Yeah. Nice so what, when, when this first thing, when this thing was first shown, this, uh, this 
Bolus release of oxytocin, the, the assumption was, oh, somehow oxytocin is is the cause of that. And no, it doesn't block ejaculation. And all that was reported, and that wasn't, I'm not even sure it was a statistical fact, was the subjects did report that it wasn't quite so pleasant in the presence of the oxytocin antagonist. So that's a kind of anomaly, but yet, you know, they, uh, again, ancestrally, you have peptides that are, that are very similar. Um, you have functions that are, uh, you have physiologies that are, uh, that are, that are synergistic in the case of naturesis, naturesis coming along with the increase in, uh, in, in water retention. So, so does that translate into receiving similar synaptic inputs? Because neurons that are near each other are at least in position yeah. to receive similar yeah. synaptic so inputs. So osmotically, they receive similar synaptic inputs. That's clear. Um, but in terms of the control of blood pressure, they don't. They don't receive the same synaptic inputs. So for example, if you transiently raise blood pressure with phenylephrine uh, injected peripherally, uh, just a small bolus of phenylephrine will shut off an oxytocin cell as the blood pressure goes up, right? Because you don't want more vasopressin because it's also, uh, it also uh, contracts smooth muscle and raises blood pressure. So if you raise blood pressure, you shut off phasic bursting, you shut off vasopressin cells. You don't, you don't affect much oxytocin cells in that, in that test. Um, so these are cells that are right next to each other. Oh yeah, they're absolutely. Now they're clustered somewhat, so that in the rat, for example, oxytocin cells tend to be clustered in the dorsal and anterior parts of the nucleus, and vasopressin cells in the ventral and posterior parts. But there's still lots of, and you think, oh, that would be enough that we could just uh, record in these regions and be happy. But every time we do that and go to identify them, you know, we still get like a third of our cells turn out to be oxytocin. We thought we were only going to get vasopressin. So we end up going back to, to immunochemical identification. We did discover that with sharp electrodes, we did find a property. Um, so phasic bursting activity, if you have that property and, can, and have the time that you need to take to really properly assess it, with his, which is many minutes, right? You can use that to distinguish, and nobody would argue too much that that was a vasopressin cell. But a lot of times you don't really want to do that. You want to get on with your study. You want a voltage lamp. You maybe even are starting out blocking stuff. And you don't really have time to do that. But we, with sharp electrodes, we found that there's a there's a sustained outward current, a potassium current in oxytocin cells that that vasopressin cells don't have. So we can distinguish oxytocin cells that way with a simple IVE test with sharp electrodes. Unfortunately, when we started doing patch recordings, we have not seen that difference in the two cell types. That is somehow subject to dialysis in, in a way that we have not been able to determine. So if the cell bodies are right next to each other, but the inputs are mostly not on the cell bodies, right? They're mostly on dendrites. So now the, the inputs dendrites are, don't have to be close. Well, they're to only mostly on dendrites in the sense that most of the surface area is dendrite. Is that what you mean? Well, or do you mean actual reason. density? Yeah, that's a good enough reason. Uh, so if most of the inputs, yeah. I'm thinking about just a sort of, I guess, anatomous first level of thinking about localization of function, mm -hmm. which is the neurons that are in the same thalamic nucleus are handling the same sensory modality, that kind of way of thinking mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. And so the, the neurons that are in the same hypothalamic <coughs> nucleus ought to be handling the same... Uh, Neurochemical modality, or okay, so that's I, fair. I, it's just uh, I know it isn't. It isn't a law. It's it's really more kind of like a guideline. Yeah. So but I was thinking about that. 
So if the cell bodies are all jammed close to each other, but the dendrites went off to completely different places, then there would be no problem keeping their inputs separate. Do yeah. they? Dendrites no. do that? No. The They're dendrites... all dumping into the same portals, the, the same capillary bed. Though. No, that's the axons. No, the dendrites project to what's called the ventral lamina. So the ventral, yeah, like in superoptic. Now, in, 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 I'll tell you about paraventricular in a second. In superoptic, the dendrites project to what's called the ventral lamina. It's right next to the peel surface. There's a glial lamina. If you if you stay in with GFAP or something, you'll see a nice uh, uh, row of, of pituocytes. I mean, of, of glial cells that are um, GFAP positive that line the just above the pendimal surface, and um, the Dendrites all go right above that into a, a nice little lamina where there's very little cells, but oxytocin vasopressin dendrites both go to that same region. So there's no like uh, oxytocin cells project dorsally out of the nucleus, and no. So that, that lamina is a plexiform layer in a sense that that's what it is. It is a plexiform layer. And yeah, and there's the inputs that are there that are widely studied, or for example, noradrenergic inputs are widely studied in that region, and they appear to impinge on both of the cell types. Um, but again, you have you have common stimuli that do activate both cell types, like osmotic stimuli, um, and you have other stimuli that that seem to be separating out the two types. So when you look at inputs to the nucleus, is there something you could say about that? Well, some inputs appear to favor the vas at least from the somatic distribution level, favor the vasopressin area, so to speak, um, like the like the A one. Uh, noradrenergic cell group in the medulla, whereas the NTS, noradrenergic cell group, A2, seems to favor the dorsal part of the nucleus. Um, beyond that, there's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of good evidence for their morphological separation of inputs, but the best evidence for separation of inputs is, are these physiological situations where you can separate out to some stimuli, but not, not to all. Is there any evidence for for inhibitory or interneurons in, in this nuclei? Yeah, some. It's not very strong. So the best evidence is that with very small injections of retrograde tracers using a ventral approach, so that you don't damage a lot of stuff. There's a there's a small group of GABAergic neurons that are in what's called the perinuclear zone. It's a it's a layer of maybe 200. 300 microns, it kind of surrounds the supraoptic nucleus. Um, and if you, if you deafferent the hypothalamus, in fact, take out most everything but the supraoptic, in older studies, Zaborski did this study actually, uh, Laszlo, um, you don't see, you see a lot of terminals that don't degenerate in the supraoptic nucleus. And their assumption was there must be some intrinsic inputs. There's not a lot of evidence for GABAergic or any type of interneuron in the actual, what, what I would call the body of the nucleus, like intermixed among magnocellular neurons. They tend to be outside if they're there. And there's not, I don't think there are many of them. If you take a slice, uh, and it doesn't matter what plane you section it in, and you record from the neurons, and you put TTX on, you, only in a few cells will you actually change the distribution of synaptic activity. Now, you could argue, well, that doesn't mean anything because the cells that are projecting there just might not be active. And that, that's true. They might not be active, these inner neurons. But you certainly don't, you know, you don't suppress some kind of tonic synaptic activity that might be regulating their activity. In a few cells, you do. 
that's some argument that, and that kind of matches what, what people have done. They've made microinjection of glutamate around the nucleus. And every now and then they get a cell where they make a microinjection of glutamate around the nucleus and that cell gets a big synaptic input from that neuron. But statistically speaking, it's, it's small. If you put TTX on and look at the whole, all your synaptic activity, you don't change much the distribution of minis, for example. So is it, is it possible? So you're, you're saying that then that they have the same inputs and um, under most circumstances they have the same responses. Um, but under specific physiological, physiologically relevant circumstances, you have very different responses. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. you brought up the blood pressure, yeah. phenylephrine bolus example. Yeah. So is it just possible that they just have a different ionic composition, different channels on each type of cell so that a similar um, input to the cells cause very different responses? Yeah, so for example, the depolarizing after potential that I was speaking about earlier today and the, the slow one in particular that appears to summate into a plateau potential, oxytocin cells don't, don't appear to have the plateau potential. Now, a small percentage of oxytocin cells have the depolarizing after potential. If you measure its amplitude and its area uh, to the same number of spikes, it isn't that different. But if you start adding spikes on, it doesn't grow and it doesn't generate this regenerative sort of bursting pattern of activity for the most part. So yeah, I think that's, it's reasonable to think, but I tell you what, when we were doing these studies and, and just doing IV curves and, and giving spikes and looking at AHPs, if you take a normal like male rat or a normal female rat, you're hard pressed to see very many differences between these cell types. One of them was this sustained outward rectification that we saw in oxytocin cells, and the other one I think that's most you know, is the, is the depolarizing after potential, which favors vasopressin cells, but is not exclusive to it and can't be used just like um, location in the nucleus. You can't use it as an absolute marker for, for vasopressin cells. Um, it seems like the, perhaps these inputs have to be, the differences that you're going to see are going to be subtle in terms of doing, for example, an FI curve, which mm -hmm. is giving a square wave depolarization, um, whereas most physiologically significant synaptic synaptic inputs are going to be, you know, subtly different in, yeah. in some ways that favor some kind of channels or some kind of current that would turn off one cell that has a current and, and the other cell that doesn't have a current would respond with spiking. I, I don't know. No, I think that's fair, and that hasn't been done very much, to be honest with you. There, there's been there hasn't been a lot of work on the responses of cells to synaptic input beyond being able to show that you can instigate a burst of activity in a vasopressin cell by stimulating a known uh, glutamatergic uh, input, like say from the, the ventral lamina of the, of, the, of the third ventricle where the organovasculosum of the lamina terminalis lies, which has a lot of uh, osmotically sensitive neurons itself and projects strongly to the to both the vasopressin cells and oxytocin cells in both supraoptic and paraventricular, that is a, if you stimulate that, you can drive bursting activity in vasopressin cells. And you can, you can increase the firing rate of oxytocin cells, but you won't drive basic, you know, phasic bursting activity. But that's about it. But that just comes back to the fact that there's something different about the depolarizing after potential in two cell types. Yeah, but I think it's exciting from sort of for solving the puzzle that was bothering me. So I was just sort of imagining a scenario. There's some primordial neurosecretory nucleus that releases this um, primordial 
uh, hormone that acts on vasculature, something like that. And now, uh, from evolutionary perspective, you are now going to try to create basically two nuclei, one that controls lactation, one that controls the kidneys. Uh, what seem like completely, totally different things. Now, the, the two hormones don't have to be very different chemical structures, so one little tiny change, one amino acid, can turn the one hormone into the other. That's right. But, but what do you do about controlling these two hormones separately? And our usual way of thinking about evolution of the brain is we'd imagine that this nucleus would duplicate itself. And then one of them would, uh, would gradually acquire different inputs from the other. That, I mean, that, you know. And the nucleus uh, would just butt off of the other nucleus? Yeah, it's <laughs> sort of a way that we. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching maybe it's happening. In, uh, no, that the yeah, evolution of the brain. That's what we kind of so, teach. So that has happened. So that that budding off is the difference between the paraventricular. So and I, that the was what I was going to ask you yeah. because that seems like an, an, a crazy puzzle in the wrong dimension. You end yeah. up budding up and you often ending up with two nuclei that are identical, yeah. and that both of them have both hormones in them. So originally, when they, they in the original studies that were mostly done in cat for some reason back then. There was there, and you can find this in textbooks written in the sixties and seventies that the that the that the paraventricular nucleus releases oxytocin and that the supraoptic nucleus releases vasopressin. Uh -huh. And in the early seventies, uh, that was that actually those those studies. It's kind of like saying that there's a difference in the topography of taste on the tongue, which there uh -huh. isn't. There's not really good evidence that you know the that the sweet and sour are really that different on the surface of your tongue. There's like there was an anecdotal study that just got replicated. Well, you can easily do it yourself. Then you can do it yourself. But but in these cases, there was data that suggested that couldn't quite be right. But then it was put to rest completely when immunochemistry came along and people said, "Yeah, there's both cell types and both nuclei. It doesn't matter whether it's cat, dog, mouse, or whatever." And so, but having said that, the two nuclei are not the same. They're not the same. So paraventricular nucleus has a huge population of two other cell types that the supraoptic nucleus doesn't have. And those two cell types, one, are, are neurons, particularly cortotropin-releasing factor neurons, CRF neurons, that project to the external layer of the median eminence, terminate near capillaries and are drained by the portal vein into the anterior lobe, and they control the secretion of ACTH. And that is the primary localization of CRF neurons, and that's in the medial part of the paraventricular nucleus, living right next to the magnocellular neurons, but not intermixed among them, but living right next to them. The second group, and there are other ones in that that are also projected, the external layer, thyrotropin-releasing hormone, and a few other ones. The other substantial group is a group of neurons that projects to the brainstem and to the spinal cord, to preautonomic regions. This consists even in, includes some oxytocin vasopressin neurons, a small percentage, of which these are not collaterals that project to the neural lobe, by the way, because people that was the first thing people looked for, is they would put a stimulant electrode in the NTS and they put in or the dorsal motor nucleus vagus, put a stimulant electrode in the in the uh, stock. In, in vivo and say, let's drive these two cell types in the paraventricular nucleus, and they were always separate. Maybe one out of a hundred had a branching axon or something ridiculous like that. So they are different. And their inputs are a little different as well. They don't, they don't share all the same inputs, and you can imagine that they shouldn't because the inputs that are controlling CRF and, and these preautonomic areas are probably not, you know, are different and additional to what you'd need to control just the release of oxytocin and vasopressin. So how that came about, I don't really know what the ancestral homolog of the brainstem projecting neurons 
is and whether they are mixed together in this, this primordial megacellular preoptic nucleus that Kandel first studied in goldfish. Uh, so um, so that, it, that's interesting that there are inside the brain connections that, that releases hormones. Yes. But I, I still sort of pursuing Carlos's idea as an alternative mechanism, evolutionary mechanism, is that you just, you don't duplicate the nucleus, you leave the nucleus there, you, you have half the cells make the one hormone and half the other, and then you alter the properties of the neurons a little bit so that they respond dramatically different to the exact same synaptic inputs. Mm -hmm. And you could create effectively two nuclei that coexist that had enough physiological differences. That's what you were thinking. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, yeah. but I, mean, I mean, evolution hasn't stopped. I mean, uh, this thing can be They might still buy so if they, <laughs> they might still no doing it, to. and they might still differentiating they don't in need both to ways. Fun functionally, they are two nuclei now. But there's really no reason. There's no need for it. They, they serve the functions of controlling these dramatically different physiological things. I'm not going to question evolution. Yeah. <laughs> But they well, do you have. Imagine it was yeah. up to something. That it wasn't <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying that one way to look at it is like the, the question I have is like if the ratio changes, for example, in primates, right? And if you follow them uh, phylogenetically, right? And this, the relative size of these nuclei when they appear and the ratio of these two different cell types, and ideally their electrophysiological properties. Okay. That's basically, <coughs> sorry, sorry, some, some of it may be that uh, the output pathway is common, right? These are secretory cells, they just have to secrete. Mm -hmm. They don't have to send their outputs, segregate them, go to specially different places, right? So <coughs> if you want to get different functions normally, you have to depend on different inputs and regulate different outputs. And so evolution may have to work harder on actually segregating things into nuclei. And if you're just going to have two cell types, if they just react to inputs differently and then just dump, then you may have less of a pressure of segregating things anatomically into different nuclei, as long as you can keep things straight. It is puzzling, though, then, that the electrical properties of the neurons are so similar. They are similar. They're more. I would say they're more similar than they are different, but there are key differences. I, and the other thing I was going to say, the fast That's depolarization... The differences are key. Yeah, yeah. The fast depolarization that <laughs> I talked about today <laughs> is, I think, is even more segregated to vasopressin cells than is the, than is the slow depolarization. Um, it's, it's, uh, we don't see that in, in oxytocin cells, maybe one out of 20 or something like that. So, you know, I'm not saying... I'm always just more impressed by how I was always more impressed when I first started doing these intracellular studies and looking at their different properties about how similar they were than I was how different they were. I thought the differences would jump out. I thought we'd see, I thought we'd see in in female rats we'd see oxytocin cell like bursting. In female rats we just have to like tweak the membrane potential a little bit, things like that. We, we don't we don't see that. So how many how many cells are there? How many oxytocin cells are there in a rat and Person. In a human, I don't know. In a rat, uh, or what are we talking about? 10,000, 10, something like that? So it's really it's a not, large group. I guess yeah. the reason for that is that you have to get enough oxytocin in that's, the bloodstream. That's both nuclei combined. I think the number in supraoptic may be more like 4,000, 4, something like that, four or 5,000. So, so supraoptic, not only were they wrong about this division of function between paraventricular and supraoptic, uh, supraoptic has just by sharing half, they have about, the ratio is more like, depending on who counts and, and which study you read, 
can range from 60-40 to 45-55, but it usually favors vasopressin cells in the supraoptic, and it usually favors oxytocin cells by 5 or 10% in the paraventricular nucleus. But, of course, most of the oxytocin cells in the brain are in the supraoptic nucleus because they have, there's lots more cells in the supraoptic than there are in the paraventricular. So, and if you look at their behavior um, during these different physiological challenges and say, certainly there must be something different about paraventricular than supraoptic, there's slight differences, like the mean firing rate change in, a, in an oxytocin cell is a little different than it is in, in the paraventricular nucleus than it is in the supraoptic. But it's a small statistical change that doesn't doesn't mirror, doesn't reflect on the fact that they're actually activated by these same stimuli. So they are slightly, they are still somehow a little bit different, even that in that way. We're talking about pretty low-level behaviors, things that you know would uh -huh. sort of be lethal if they were, pro you know, screwed Gone. up in during the course of development. But are there any pituitary syndromes or metabolic syndromes that sure. target these particular? Sure. The worst thing that can happen is uh, a brain tumor uh, in the in the anterior pituitary that that will invade, like a prolactinemia, for example, which is very common. Not not I should say not very common. Not that uncommon. Let's say that'll expand and and, and invade and sometimes invade and press on the the nuclei from below. Mm -hmm. There uh, and so there's uh, a situation where there's inappropriate stimulation of antidiuretic hormone that can come either from a brain lesion that is operating on the cells, like probably the afferent inputs to the cells, um, but also there are, there are cancerous lung tumors that, that make vasopressin. In fact, if you, if you start to have inappropriate secretion of vasopressin, like too much vasopressin, the first thing they'll check for is, one of the first things they'll check for is lung cancer. So, uh, but it's more common to have a, a pituitary that presses you know, on, on the neurons from the, from the base of the brain. And then a lot of times when they resect those tumors, which they can do, like a, a pituitary tumor, they can resect, or they can, like a palactinemia, they, or palactinoma, they can treat with bromocryptine, uh, which is a dopamine agonist. Because dopamine is the primary prolactin inhibitory factor. Um, I have a colleague, actually, that has, has had this, and it's, it's controlled by drugs. Um, um, but if it isn't controlled by drugs, you can resect it, but it's very common when resecting these tumors to actually damage the, the neurohypophyseal tract and screw the person up worse than what you started. So then, so you, it won't regenerate, it's like other places inside the brain. It's, in a way, it's a little different. It just has to make it to the blood vessels. Can it, it can regenerate, and it has been shown to regenerate, but it typically takes a long time and it, it does, and it will regenerate near blood vessels, but it's not obvious. It's not always obvious that those blood vessels will still get access to general circulation, even though they will do it. But yeah, they will regenerate. But w what they do is they, you can live without vasopressin or oxytocin, and you can just take hormone supplements, and that's what that's what they do when people have those problems. They just you just take vasopressin or you take oxytocin, primarily vasopressin. You don't need oxytocin to live. You need vasopressin. You'll lose too much water without it. You become, you know, hypo, hyperosmotic and stuff like that. The, cool, the thing that's coolest from an experimental point of view about the cells is the fact that the release sites are accept, accessible and the release can be readily measured. And the, so it has been a place 
where the relationship between act, uh, action potentials and release has been studied a lot. Yeah. And um, uh, so, c can you kind of remind us about the history of that? The the question is, are all spikes equally effective at releasing a hormone? What is the ideal firing pattern for mm -hmm. releasing hormone? Mm -hmm. What firing patterns are no good? Right. And uh, can we interpret the firing patterns of neurons in relation to their optimization for the release? Yeah. That's been studied in great detail. So um, one, of the, one of the more interesting studies that was done early on was people recorded phasic bursting activity from a from an in vivo animal and captured the spikes and then triggered off a window discriminator and used the output of that to drive a stimulator and then stimulated back the isolated neural lobe and looked at the relationship between those phasic burst activities and, and some stuff they made up uh, to drive it so continuous. And that was done even better later, that was first done by Richard Dybal, I think you met before, but then done better, I think, by Gareth Lang and John Bicknell um, sometime after that. And so the burst itself uh, and the burst pattern is by, has been dissected very carefully. And if you look at an individual burst, uh, let's say a burst that lasts, say, 20 seconds, um, and you play that and you, you let that burst uh, stimulate the neural lobe and get vasopressin release, most of the release of vasopressin is happening in the first nine seconds or so. Let's say it's 21 seconds and it's a third. I think that's about what that burst what they used for, for this one model anyway. And most of the release is happening in the first nine seconds. The firing rate is, is faster then, but the release per spike is much, much greater than the increase in the firing rate. It's not, so no, the spikes are not equal. A single spike can release uh, vasopressin at a low firing rate. That's been shown before, but uh, you get a lot more release. You get facilitation of release uh, with clustered spiking. And if you stimulate too long, you get fatigue, and it drops off, and you can stimulate continuously for a long time, and you won't keep releasing vasopressin. And so the bursting activity appears to be, for vasopressin cells, critical to the recovery of the cell being able to uh, to release again at a high level. And that the mechanisms for that recovery are not, are not fully known. So is it depletion of hormone and then the cell has it to... Appears has to, be to not, it appears to not be totally depletion of hormone. Some, they've mainly, people have mainly argued that there's some kind of calcium homeostatic mechanism that has to be, uh, has to be recycled. So it's the release mechanism itself. The mechanism itself, it's not depletion of the hormone. There's tons of hormone in these hormones. And it takes forever for you to replenish the hormone because um, it has to be transported down there. And there's tons of vesicles down there. But when you stimulate, you don't get huge numbers of vesicles to release. There's lots of hormones in each vesicle. And so it's not, I don't think it's depletion of hormone. And that may be related to docking and things like that and other calcium-dependent mechanisms, but it's, it's, not, it's not depletion. And there's no local synthesis. There's no, there's, no so, there's no recycling in the way that you think of for, for glutamate and GABA. There's no recapturing and making a new neurosecretory vesicle, nothing like that. I guess I would hope that you might look at them and say, oh, look, the spike train is perfect. You know, mm -hmm. it's perfectly optimized for the release mechanism. Is it? Yeah. Or? So the spike train appears to be. If you if you buy this this model of the isolated neural lobe to test 
what the optimal spike train are and stuff, then the optimal spike train is 13 hertz for a vasopressin cell. And, and that happens to be in a, in a, in a, in a, in a dehydrated rat, uh, where you can dehydrate a rat for like 24 hours and you never really change. After that, you never really change much the structure of bursting activity. They average, the bursts average about 13 hertz. Isn't that great? That, that's totally remarkable, I think. And the bursts don't go on any longer than they need to. So they, they the will go a little bit longer. Counts. They will go a little bit longer. So when you stimulate a lot, you tend to get longer bursts. You don't change the firing rate that much, but you do increase it a little bit within the bursts. But it really loves this 13 hertz firing rate, and it really likes to have a nice recovery of about 20 seconds. And if you don't get that, if you just drive the neural lobe with continuous activity, um, then you get a fatigue. Now, interestingly enough, if you measure oxytocin at the same time, oxytocin cells like they like bursting too. They would rather have bursting than not. But they don't show nearly the amount of fatigue that a vasopressin cell does. You can measure it at the same time. You can stimulate the stock, you're stimulating oxytocin axons at the same time you're stimulating vasopressin axons. You can measure vasopressin. You get much more fatigue from the vasopressin system than you do from the oxytocin. So oxytocin That's interesting. cells are, are free to uh, encode something with the duration of the burst. Yeah, and oxytocin right. cells, you know, in a normal animal, when you, like I told you, they, oxytocin cells also respond to osmolality, for example, but they don't adopt phasic bursting. They just increase their firing rate rather monotonically with osmolality. So they don't mind continuous firing in a normal animal, in a non-lactating animal, Oxytocin cells don't like bursting. They don't adopt it. I mean, they like it in the sense that you'll get optimal release with bursting, but in a normal animal, that doesn't seem to be a priority for oxytocin cells. They, they don't burst. They fire continuously. They go from this slow, irregular activity to a fast, continuous activity, and that's their way of responding to these other inputs like, like uh, increases in osmolality. So, so people looked at how crucial it is to actually pause afterwards in terms of recovery? Yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 that's what I was saying to Charlie. The, 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 the pausing is absolutely critical but to recovery. More sophisticated than just continuing this high trade. So suppose that you're going to recover. Does one spike, do you actually have to be absolutely silent? Does one spike screwed up or a couple spikes, this recovery process? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. But I would guess that one or two spikes in, a, in, a, in this period of 20 seconds wouldn't matter that much. It seemed like from the traces I, I that, that you showed in your talk today, there was absolutely zero spikes in between these bursts. Uh, in those traces, there weren't, but you yeah. can, you do, we, see we the, do see the, yeah, you see the occasional odd spike. And if it's too early after the end of the last burst, it will not trigger a burst. If it's later, the more the higher the probability that it will. And you can test that directly by anadromically stimulating the stock. Uh, and people did that in the 70s, mid-70s. So the first idea that this was some kind of an intrinsic uh, mechanism came from a guy named Dreyfus who, who stimulated the stock in, in, in these animals and showed that uh, you could, number one, you could instigate a burst with a single anadromic shock. You could start a burst going. Number two is that once the burst terminated, if you gave these anadromic shocks, they wouldn't instigate a burst until, oh geez, like about 20 seconds later, then they would start being able to instigate a burst again. So he showed they were refractory and he showed that an anadromic spike. And people in the beginning just said, well, that's not an intrinsic property, that's just a collateral because it wasn't appreciated that it didn't have collaterals. Now, Gareth has kind of looked at that as well uh, more recently and he's shown something very similar with the afferent input driving that activity as well. 
and same, showing the same kind of refractoriness to afferent-driven spikes that are from this OVLT region. But uh, intellectually, there's nothing new about his stick compared to this other one, I don't think. So the releases from these large granules that are transported down from the cell body, mm -hmm. but this terminals also contain little tiny synaptic vesicle-looking things that look just like synaptic vesicles yes. that you see in the brain in yes. most places. And anyway, you see large Zinscar granules in the synapses in the brain, too. It's just that everybody's focused on the little ones, and the big ones are fewer and not at the active zones, and so uh, one doesn't know about them. But it in the terminals of the neurosecretory cells, there are also little vesicles, and they're also active zones. Yeah. Uh, yet, and that, and those don't make any sense, and so they get pretty much disregarded, I guess. But there isn't really much difference between the between synapses formed in the brain and the and these release sites of the neurosecretory cells. No, there's Except not a, that there's no postsynaptic element. Right. Waiting there's not a lot of difference, and the the the. Micro, the smaller vesicles are much more clustered at these at the contact zone than are the dense core vesicles. Much more clustered. They they're very numerous, as you can see from number any number of pictures. And um, so the original these were seen early on by Pele. Pele reported them. That he did the first electron microscopy of the neural lobe, as he did it pretty much as he did in the old you know, with these other guys in the old brain. And um, and he reported on him, and, and I was telling Charlie the original studies. I think Ladaris was a guy who was uh, responsible for for thinking about it this way, um, because these small clear vesicles were present at neuromuscular junction, and before people knew they were glutamate and, and GABA in the brain, people when they, when they saw clear vesicles in the brain and they're in the in the fifth, late fifties and early sixties, everybody thought these are these are cholinergic neurons. The brain has got cholinergic stuff just like the neuromuscular junction. And so that was said about the pituitary as well. And there was some evidence to try to suggest that they actually released acetylcholine, none of which has, has been able to be re replicated. So they, that sort of died away, the idea that they were releasing acetylcholine. Um, and then people really nailed that you know they, they were releasing these other peptides, and that was much more important. Um, and then uh, they didn't give up on the clear vesicles, and so they started, I was telling Charlie earlier, they, these stains that chelate calcium, like pyroantimonate for electron microscopy, people had shown those to, to form precipitate over vesicles. And, and so, now that, that, that's true in the brain as well, as we were yeah. saying, but the, the interpretation for some reason or another in the neural lobe was, well, that doesn't mean these are necessarily secretory. Maybe these are part of the calcium Reservoir. Maybe these are like ER. These are stores of calcium, and then and then that kind of went away. Nobody talked about that anymore. So the most recent thing I can say about clear vesicles, and there's been some work done on synaptic proteins by from Greenguard's group, um, but other than that, what's the most exciting in, in recent stuff, and I don't think it's published actually, is that if you stain for the glutamate vesicle transporter. Um, synaptic transport, you see staining in, uh, over these vesicles. And uh, Tony Vanderpoel has evidence, that uh, other evidence, that they actually release glutamate. What that glutamate does, where it goes, is it's, I can't imagine that it's doing anything in the blood. Um, How about acting on the But it might be acting on the receptors in the terminal? 
could be acting on the vasculature, could be acting on glial cells. Or you tell. Or it could be, yeah, there could be presynaptic receptors. There's no, that I know of yet anyway, I don't think there's any evidence for that. But I don't know why he hasn't pursued this. It was, I thought it was fascinating and interesting, and it answered a lot of people's questions. And I, and he, I heard him give this talk a couple of times, and I asked him, why aren't you publishing this stuff? And he said, oh, I'm still trying to nail down something, something. So, and Tony... It'll, it'll get done. It'll get done. And so that's, that's interesting. That they might actually make glutamate, and then what is it doing? That's a whole other, it's a whole other issue. Well, the other thing that's really unique about them is that, then the hormone that they release has to find its way into the bloodstream, and the arrangement of the axons around the vasculature is unique and interesting, and has led to a lot of speculation about regulation of diffusion and, right. and that sort of thing. And some of that work is work that you did. Right. Uh, how about you know filling us in on the problem? The problem for the hormone after it gets released, uh, the dilution that that it goes through in order, before it gets to its target, sure. and, and you know how can it go wrong and not ever make it to its target? And yeah. then what are pituitides? What are pituitides for? That the actual terminal zone is full of these non-neuronal cells, right? And they appear to be bearers on so the normal animal. Uh, that it isn't releasing a lot of hormone. The, if this is a terminal, now we don't have a video, but you'll have to imagine I'll, I'll make a That's Bill is making a fist, a fist with my <laughs> left hand, <laughs> and now I'm going to grab my, my left fist with my right hand, and my right hand is a pituocyte. And that's what it looks like in the normal animal. And so if you imagine the blood vessels over here on the back of my hand, the pituocyte is like that. So In the it, way. In the way. But there's Absolutely. gaps between the fingers. There's gaps between the fingers, but uh, the pituitates are kind, and so if you stimulate the guy a little bit chronically, like dehydrate the animal a little bit, or look at a lactating female animal, those two give you the same result, the pituitates withdraw away from that, and the terminal moves up against the basal lamina of the So the actual vessel. distance gets shorter. So the distance gets shorter, the, the straight distance gets shorter to the vessel, but also the tortuosity is probably less, that's my speculation, because... Uh, path it doesn't, the path length has to, has to have been decreased for that reason. Um, and we were going to study that, as I was saying earlier, and, and didn't, didn't pursue that. But we well, you did, didn't measure, we you didn't measure me the volume fraction and tortuosity in, the, in that, yeah. at least under some circumstances. Yeah, we did measure the normal tortuosity, and we measured the volume fraction. We did measure the volume. We did, uh, we did look at the change in the, in the volume as a function of stimulation. So there is, there is a small uh, volume shrinkage uh, during a burst of action potentials. Uh, and you also have a big increase in extracellular potassium. And that, that's the kind of thing we looked at. So this is but a decrease uh, in extracellular volume, which really means a higher concentration, concentration of, of, stuff. of stuff making yeah. it to the blood yeah. So that's more, the, the study that, if I had been thinking, uh, and I'll tell you why I didn't think about it, um, is what, what, we, what had been shown at the same time as those studies on the neural lobe is that something similar was going on in the nuclei. So in the nuclei, the cells are packed together, but in the normal animal, there are pituitocyte processes that separate the somata and the dendrites of these cells. Uh, and pituitocyte. I'm sorry, astrocytes. astrocytes. Pituitocytes are modified astrocytes right. in the GFAP. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. So the pituitary, the pituitary gland, all astrocytes are pituitocytes. Are pituitocytes. <laughs> so the astrocytes in the supraoptic nucleus um, insert 
uh, processes between the somata and the dendrites. And in these same situations where you're enhancing hormone release chronically, they withdraw these processes. The cells have longer somatosomatic and dendrodendritic appositions. Okay? So, uh, and that's true of, of both lactation, again, and in cases of chronic hyperosmolality. So the study that was done that I would have never imagined would have worked. And I'll tell you why, because I thought if you slice the brain and put it in a dish for a couple hours, I just can't imagine that you're going to be able to retain any kind of, you know, knowing what I know about what the ultrastructure of slices kind of looks like and stuff. And I guess I just wasn't paying much attention to the way people were working hard to preserve the ultrastructure better, like Kristen Harris and these people. And so I underestimated how, how uh, undisturbing you know, this procedure could actually be, non-perturbing, I should say. Yeah. So there, uh, some, a group of people did this with the lactating animal, and they measured tortuosity and volume fraction in the supraoptic nucleus with unsensitive electrodes in lactators and normal animals. Tell us how that experiment works. So you put an ion-sensitive electrode in the tissue, and then you have to place some ion somewhere else and then measure that ion. Yeah, the ion, that the, the preferred ion is tetramethyl ammonium, and you basically anaphoresis it is the best way to do it. And at some known distance. some known distance from, a, from an electrode that you can record the signal from, and then you measure... You, you measure the that arrival. signal as the arrival of that, and you fit that. It's a complicated, um, it's a, as Charles Nicholson has shown, it's not a simple exponential function. It's, it's best fit with complicated simplex fitting, and he's able to get from that, he's able to extract the tortuosity and the volume fraction from analysis of that curve, of that okay. diffusion curve. And, and it's a very elegant and um, and, and very consistent, as you know, with morphological studies that he's also done, whereby he's been able to look at similar diffusion patterns by depositing, say, dextran fluorescent material in the striatum or whatever, and, and looking at the, uh, the diffusion of that as well. So, um, anyway, in these animals, yes, when you do that and you get rid of the pituocytes, I mean, Sorry, they get rid of the astrocyte processes, the tortuosity goes down, and the volume fraction, uh, the volume fraction, what did they find with the volume fraction? The volume fraction also went down. The high, there was a less extracellular volume in these situations where the cells were packed next to each other. I guess that's because there are fewer layers. Fewer layers, layers of stuff. The, yeah, and cells, again, cells have more... So when the, when the pituocytes are inserting, you might argue, well, geez, if it's, what, what difference should the extracellular fluid make if it's a pituocyte versus you know, two neurons next to each other? Well, what happens when they move, when they're in there between, you can kind of see that the pituocyte might end here and then there'll be a big, huge gap and the cells aren't together there. And, 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 the, and the pituocyte is irregular. They don't seem to have these very close appositions. Whereas when the pituocytes move out and the cells move up, each other, they come really close to each other. Yeah. They Plus, come you just, very if close. you have a pituitary in between, there's two layers of extracellular space. If you move, that's it right. Out, you you move it out. One. You just have one. You just have one. Yeah. So those are neat. Those were neat studies that that correlated with that. And I guess the, again, that means that you know the the nucleus is the nucleus. I don't know how the physio physiological meaning of the change in tortuosity or volume fraction in the nucleus. 
it happens because there's morphological plasticity. The morphological plasticity may only happen because the cells have to get bigger. The cells get bigger because they're making more protein. Every every cell that has to make a lot of protein during a situation, you know, gets bigger. That's that's a kind of general rule. And so they do. They get bigger. They're making lots of hormone. And it could just be that the tortuosity stuff doesn't matter. It might matter, but it's just a consequence of the cells getting bigger and. But the people who were doing this were thinking about potassium concentration. They were, and the, and people have measured potassium. And their their argument the argument that was made by Jonathan Coles and, and Dominic Poulin in that and when they did measure with ion sensitive electrodes potassium during during these bursts, and you can measure you know the transient elevation of potassium with these bursts, is that the even in even in this situation the glial cells are very efficient at removing the potassium, and that maybe just maybe cell next to the other one, okay, maybe that one sees a little bit of extracellular potassium and helps depolarize it. But in general, their argument was that there wasn't that big a difference between the lactating and the virgin animals. Now, in the virgin animals, they had to sort of mimic this activity by anadromic stimulation stuff, as opposed to the actual afferent-driven bursting. Well, are they, is this now being reinterpreted in view of oxytocin released from the cell and and cell-to-cell communication by oxytocin because even if potassium concentration isn't raised by that oxytocin. other things that are being released would be yeah it, and that's that's probably the single you've asked me like what's really hot and probably the single pursuing this idea of local release and autoreceptors that's probably the hottest thing going not just autoreceptors on the cells but also presynaptic receptors retrograde you know signaling and there's lots of data for that um, and that and you can a very elegant study was done by by a guy who showed that during this period of, of withdrawal of the astrocyte processes that you dramatically change the glutamate mediated uh, uh, presynaptic in- inhibitory activity so um, based on the fact that for suicide pro- astrocyte processes have moved out and are not wicking up as much glutamate anymore so there's a persistence of glutamate release during afferent stimulation that enhances the presynaptic inhibition of this scene. And that was very nicely demonstrated in the study. And that's something that goes on during lactation. That's a direct consequence of that plasticity. I don't know if it has anything to do with tortuosity, but it has to do with, presumably, with the withdrawal of the processes away from the terminals. So it's kind of great that you keep calling them pituitans. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's, it's great because um, we think of the of the magnocellular cells, even though they're in the brain, as sort of being neurosecretory cells and not being like regular neurons. But the astrocytes around them are regular astrocytes, just like anywhere else. And astrocytes there can do that. So why wouldn't we think that astrocytes everywhere are doing something like this? I think they are. Is there evidence in other parts of the brain for astrocytes changing and making synapses more effective and... Yeah, I think um, that Craig Jar has some 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 uh, two photon. I don't know if it's published yet or not, but but he he gave a talk a couple of years here and he showed us. I think it was in, in the either the olfactory bulb or the cerebellum where he actually showed glia um, getting out of the way so that uh, neurons could talk to each other better. So it it's, it may maybe be, exactly it, the same maybe exactly the same process and it may be. A, a general concept for the brain that mm-hmm. we, we just 
are now discovering. Yeah, I don't know too many other like sort of ultrastructure studies that show this kind of quantitative change. Um, I, I don't I don't really know of any other. But if you look at glomeruli, well, like an olfactory bulb, or they're ensheathed by astrocytes. Right. Well, most electron microscopists didn't get interested in studying the shape and size of the extracellular space. They <laughs> were they, interested in the shape and size of other things. Right. <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of things in there to look at. The extracellular space was sort of at the bottom of the list. But, you know, right now it's become kind of fashionable and easy to stain the extracellular space. Uh, instead of staining a particular neuron, you just stain the extracellular space to provide negative contrast with the neuron. And whenever I see those pictures, which are being used just to outline the cell processes at, in low-resolution EMs for reconstruction purposes, I always think, wow, look there. There is an image of the extracellular space. If we print this at real high contrast we, and stack these images, we'd have a picture of the shape of the extracellular space. The tortuosity of it should be directly calculable. The volume fraction of it should be you know, easy to measure. It's, uh, they do that by just filling the extracellular space with some dye, mm -hmm. electron-dense stuff. It's not a hard experiment to do, mm -hmm. although it is subject to chemical fixation, changes with chemical fixation, but could be done, I think, with rapid freezing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. really capture the extracellular space. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, oh, that Dr. von Herfeld would be You'd be proud pleased. if people would find out that extracellular space changes were really awesome. Yeah, I think one of the reasons, possibly, that they weren't that interested, the physiologists would have been, seemed to be the most interested in that, but uh, but the guys who were studying synaptic transients and looking at the, the shape of the transients and their relationship to inactive channel inactivation, stuff like that, mostly, like Shawol, for example, would mostly argued that diffusion wasn't, you know, for a long time anyway, and maybe that's changed now. Especially now that spillover is such a big thing, right? But back then, the early in the in the '90s and stuff, when they were first doing that, most of their conclusions were that diffusion really wasn't playing a very big role in the shape of the. And those on spines, but in calyx, but in it other is playing a huge role. Yeah, right. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Bill. It was really great having you. I appreciate you stopping in and chatting with us for a little while. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>